Heavenly Father, we magnify Your name in this place. We gather in Your name. We pray in Your name. These things are made up possible, Father, because we follow the true living God. We know You by Your Son and we, we are brought into the family by faith. And You are the Father that we long to see and, and serve in person. But in the time being, Father, You give us the opportunity to serve You from a distance. But it's not far. You've given us Your Spirit and Your Word, so we feel it in Your presence. Uh, even now, we know that You are with us through these things and through the, uh, the counsel of the Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that as we go into the Bible again tonight in chapter 11 of Acts, that what we find here tonight, Father, would be something specific for each of us, that the teacher will speak and the words will, will go along and the course of the study will, will come to its, its planned end. But there's some greater work that you plan to do through your word. There's some greater purpose in us being here, and I pray that you would reveal that to each person so that what we may hear would be uh, the beginning of something, Father. And uh, we ask, Lord, that the hearts that have been prepared to hear both now and in days to come would be hearts, Father, that you could use to glorify your name uh, through the teaching that they'll hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 11. We just finished in 10 last week, having seen the miracle of, of God opening the hearts of the Gentiles to receive the gospel. And now we turn into chapter 11 to see the expected result. The Jewish people rejoicing in the fact that the Gentiles have also turned to the Lord. Not exactly. Rather, what you'll see as, I, as we'll go together through chapter 11 is these Jews, the Jewish Christians of the early church, admonishing Peter for daring to cross the line that separated Jew from Gentile. So chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Now after Cornelius' household had received the gospel, the text says the news spread into Judea among those in the church. And the spread of this news was as swift as it was stunning to the people who received it back in Judea. Notice what part of the news, though, they took issue with or what part of the news caught their attention. It was not the miracle of Gentiles receiving the gospel. It was the fact that Peter went to them and ate with them. This seems to be their first interest in the news. Remember the Jewish point of view. The Jewish point of view concerning a Gentile was, was so fixed by Jewish teaching and Jewish tradition and custom that they were capable of overlooking the miracle of God bringing faith to the Gentile peoples after centuries and centuries and centuries of that not happening. Instead, they focus on Peter's audacity to walk across this invisible line that forever separated Jew from Gentile and step into the Gentile's home and then go a step further and eat with him Something that was literally against the law. Not the law of Moses, but the law of men. There was a reasonable case, and I'll make a note to this just in passing because I think it's, it's possible. There's a reasonable case to be made against Peter, actually, in this case, in that his actions were likely to provoke the anger of the unbelieving Jews. That when they hear that Peter had done this, it would be another nail in his coffin, so to speak, among the Jewish leadership to give them reason to go persecute the church and persecute the Jews that believed. Perhaps that's the reason, therefore, why his brethren are so upset at this. Perhaps it's partly out of fear for what would come upon the church as a result. 
But regardless of whether or not that was true and whether or not that was a legitimate concern, that kind of criticism ignored the obvious conclusion that you, that you have to take from the circumstances in Caesarea, and that is that God ordained this outcome. So Peter's actions were not only warranted, but necessary because they were God's will. In fact, Peter's actions were according to the direction of the Spirit. you remember? As we studied last week. So his success in persuading Cornelius concerning the gospel should have been proof in itself to all those who were in the church that this was a work ordained by God. But nevertheless, we're told in, in the verses I read that both the brethren, the disciples, but notice also the apostles were critical of Peter. We should take note here, even the apostles were critical. But the principal criticism, we're told in the text, came from the party of the circumcision. Paul, by the way, also refers to this group, this party, refers to their existence and to their negative influence on the early church in his letter to Galatia, in the, in the letter we call Galatians. In chapter 2, and I'll read three verses to just give you the context, chapter 2, 11 through 13. But when Cephas, and you know that's Peter, of course, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul talking about a conflict he had with Peter. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So there was an element or a faction or a, literally the word party might be the best word. A party within the church that even in this earliest day had begun to form a set of thoughts or opinions separate from the rest of the body. And they were enforcing their point of view through intimidation. Sadly, it would seem the early church was burdened by these divisions just as we are today. And, and false teaching is at the core of it. So the false teaching among the early Jewish believers and particularly in this group called the Party of the Circumcision, it's centered around the practice of the law by a believer and on the keeping of Jewish customs and rules. So they were given this name, the Party of the Circumcision, probably because they advocated for the necessity of the church to remain Jewish and to adhere to all the Jewish custom and law. So the challenge to Peter here, as you notice it now at the beginning of chapter 11, begins a years-long dispute in the early church that's still going on when Paul writes to the church in Galatia. So this party of the circumcision didn't, didn't uh, just come and go quickly. It was around for quite a while. It's also worth noting that the church doesn't seem hesitant here to challenge Peter's actions, does it? They're not treating Peter like the Pope, are they? This would argue against the view that Peter was a kind of Pope or autocratic leader in the early church. Peter was clearly here a leader in the church, but not the leader and not an unquestionable or unchallengeable leader in the church. He was simply another one of the leaders in the church. And this moment reflects that truth. Remember, the church has never had a pope or any other single spiritual leader apart from Christ. Such offices are man-made and they are ultimately destructive to the work of the Spirit. Now, watching this scene... You can also understand better why God had to work so hard to move Peter and prepare Cornelius. Because apart from all of that work, this kind of an event never would have happened. If the apostles themselves are fighting Peter over the outcome, even after it's obvious God wanted it, imagine how hard it was to get him to do it in the first place. Only after God took extraordinary measures to ensure that it happened did Peter cross that line. And now, ironically, he finds himself called to account for it by the other apostles and by his brethren. 
Now, his only rescue in this moment is to simply describe the events exactly as they happen and allow God to speak for himself in the form of the events, in the way the Spirit is evident in the work of God. So he goes, through a, he goes into a long discourse here. Now, what's interesting is the pattern of Acts here is so clear in its repetition. For each of the three major groups who were given entry into the church through their receiving of the gospel, the Jews, later the Samaritans, now finally the Gentiles. With each, there's been a very similar pattern. A preaching by Peter, or a presentation by Peter. A movement of the Spirit. A speaking of tongues or other kinds of very specific, very unique manifestations to show evidence of the fact that this group was being inaugurated into the church. And then lastly, there is Peter reconciling it, making sense of it, explaining its meaning to himself or to someone else. Here it's the longest, the most involved of all, and that makes sense because obviously Peter himself had to be convinced to do it. Samaritans, a little harder. He had to go down there and see it for himself. In uh, the case of uh, Pentecost, he simply had to explain it to the men and to the who were watching and thinking everyone was drunk, remember? So all three have had this moment where Peter had to say something, the Spirit did something, and then Peter had to come around at the end and explain it to himself or to someone else. Here's the longest of those in chapter 11, verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So he walks his critics through the whole experience with the hope that they'll conclude, as Peter did, that taking the gospel to Cornelius was the proper thing to do. And the story follows exactly as we saw it unfold as we read in chapter 10 with one or two added details and most notably the fact that he, na he numbers now the, the people that went with him, six. So that's how we know that there were a total of seven when you count Peter who saw this conversion of the Gentiles into the church. And his story climaxes with that retelling of the moment that the Holy Spirit descends upon the Gentiles. And he reminds his audience that this is the experience that mirrors their own at the beginning, which refers to Pentecost, at the beginning of the church. His point, of course, is the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this very unique way is the proof they need to know this is a work of God in salvation. It is not uh, inappropriate, to say the least. And Paul, by the way, echoes exactly the same thinking in Romans at one point when he says, Romans 8:14. he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, for these are the sons of God. The fundamental definition of what is or who is a Christian is attained or is found in Romans 8.14. It's not who goes to church. It's not who's uh, confessed Christ. It is not who has uh, gone to the altar. It is not who has been baptized. Those are not the definitions of the Christian. Unbelievers can do every single one of those things and remain unbelievers. The one who is led by the Spirit of God, that person is one of the sons of God. That is the fundamental definition of the Christian. So, in my own words, a Christian is anyone who is indwelled by God's Spirit. Paul actually says in 8.14, those who are being led by the Spirit of God. But in our age today, we can say more definitively, it is those who are indwelled. Because that is the only way you can be a Christian. That is the only way to become a Christian, is to have the Spirit of God come upon you and indwell you and change your heart and provide you that new birth in the Spirit that you need. It cannot be an experience that an unbeliever can share because by definition, if they share it, they are a believer. So that is why the definition can be so clearly linked to that experience. Those who have the Spirit of God are the sons of God. By definition, then, those who do not are not. So Peter makes that point most clearly up front at at this climactic moment because it explains the appropriateness of what he did. Had he gone down there inappropriately which his critics obviously believe he did, the proof that it was inappropriate would have been the lack of the Spirit's process or or participation. So the Spirit became either his convictor or his acquitter for what he did. And as the Spirit shows, he acquitted Peter's from, from any shame or crime. He did the right thing. Secondly, notice that Peter draws his listeners' attention to Jesus' own words concerning the meaning of the Spirit's arrival. Jesus says the arrival, or in the text, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the same thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is his arrival to indwell you. He said the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be an expected experience for all who would follow him. Therefore, the arrival of the Spirit upon Gentiles confirms they have become followers of Jesus just the same. And then lastly, Peter makes his conclusion in verse 17. He said... If the Gentiles have received this gift, and he's referring, of course, to the arrival of the Spirit. If if they've received the same gift that we got from the same giver, God, for the same reason, because they believe in Jesus Christ, then how can I stand in the way? In fact, a better way to say it is, what do I have to do with it anyway? How can I stop it? Who, Who am I to have anything to say about it? Is really what he's trying to say. Notice... Peter also recognizes the unique significance of the Holy Spirit's arrival in the manner in which he arrived. He makes note of it. He says, just like he did with us in the beginning, referring not just to the fact that the Holy Spirit arrives to believers generally, but to the way he arrived in this case. He arrived in the same way that he did back at Pentecost. That's what he's referring to here. The experience for Cornelius was similar to the one at Pentecost. And the point is, the, the kinds of events you saw at Pentecost have not been continuous. They happened once, they happened for Philip, now they're happening again here, and that's so significant that Peter points to it and says, look, the same thing happened here that happened at Pentecost. That tells us something. It's unique. It's a notable sign that there has been a change in God's plan to now include the Gentiles. There can be no other conclusion. Now, verse 18 tells us what they did with this news. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, 
God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So the crowd listening to Peter acknowledges the obvious, but yet it's remarkable. It, it probably took them a moment to even digest it as they were saying it. God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. I almost hear them saying it that way. The repentance, he says, that leads to life. Now, the choice of words here is very important. I've heard this verse actually quoted in other contexts as part of a larger conversation because it is so important. Looking at what they themselves are saying, they recognize first, this is a work of God. The opening for the Gentiles into the church, into believing the gospel, was made possible because God permitted it. Which has a natural, obvious corollary. Until God permits it, it will not happen. Or without God's permitting it, it cannot happen. But now, the people who hear the story of Peter come to the only conclusion you can draw from the events. God is now permitting something that he heretofore has not permitted. Secondly, that implies that without God's willingness to grant it now, it never would have happened in the future. Not only was it never happening before, but it also would have never happened in the future had he not turned it on, so to speak, in this moment. And of course, we know theologically, whatever is true for the Gentiles in this case would have also been true for any other human being. So it never would have been possible for Jewish Christians to receive their Messiah at Pentecost either, had it not been for the fact that God was permitting it. Paul echoes exactly this same high view of God's sovereignty in relationship to salvation when he writes to the church in Corinth in several places, but in particular for tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, although only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Looking at Paul's passage just for a moment before we come back into Acts, Paul distinguishes in his short conversation there to the church between two different types of sorrow. On the one hand, he talks about worldly sorrow, and then on the other hand, he talks about a kind of godly sorrow. The worldly kind is the kind we're all familiar with. Every human being is. It's the simple regret that comes from making a mistake. But the regret is self-centered. Now, you may not have thought of it in that way before. You may never have realized that's where its source was. But when we regret the consequences of our actions, we may be truly sorry. We may really, truly wish we hadn't done what we did. But the locus of our concern is within ourselves. We're sorry because of what it cost us. We're sorry because of how it makes us feel. We're sorry because of how it ruined a relationship. We're sorry for how it lost our job. You know, there's a locus or a, a focus of interest that is selfish, that is internal. I'm sorry for what I did because of how it affects me. That is worldly sorrow. And everyone experiences it, both believer and unbeliever. And it is a common part of the human experience. Very few people live life without worldly sorrow. Only the most hardened, psychotic kind of person is completely unaffected by their own mistakes. 
egotistical maybe, narcissistic, I don't know, but you'd have to be at the extreme of some kind of sociopathic state to feel no worldly sorrow under any circumstances for anything. We all know what that feels like. The Bible talks at times about this kind of worldly sorrow. And probably the best example the Bible ever gives is Esau, given by the writer of Hebrews, when he says in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, he says, let there be no immoral or godless person among you like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So Esau felt great sorrow over his mistake of treating his birthright lightly, of selling it. He even cried over that mistake, and he sought his father's forgiveness for it, but his sorrow was entirely self-centered. He, did, he regretted losing the inheritance, obviously. He regretted disappointing his earthly father, probably. He regretted the shame of it, probably. But interestingly, and this is where we turn the, coin, or turn the coin over here and start looking at the other side. Interestingly, the writer of Hebrews says that despite his crying fit, Esau found no place for repentance, found no place for repentance. Notice that while Esau was displaying one kind of sorrow, it was in full gear. He was sorry and sorry and sorry. One kind of sorrow at full tilt. He was denied an opportunity to experience the other kind of sorrow, denied it. Those two types then obviously are independent of one another. One does not naturally lead to the other. You can have one without the other. The language in the Hebrews letter, though, also makes clear the source of that other, that that repentance that he wished he would, could get but never got, the one he sought but didn't find, that repentance, that godly repentance. The letter in Hebrews, through the language in Greek, makes it very clear the source of that repentance was outside himself. It, and the text actually says, literally, it, he was rejected. He was rejected. By whom, we might ask? Well, when it says he found no place for repentance, it implies Esau never arrived at that place of godly sorrow, though he sought it, he was rejected. The only conclusion you can make from the writer of the Hebrews, in light of how he, st he uses Esau's example in that chapter, the only conclusion we can make is that repentance, godly repentance, is a kind of spiritual sorrow that only arrives when and if it is granted or permitted by God. Lest he grant it, it cannot come. Esau, though he wished for it, was not given it. He was rejected. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. And as a result, back to Paul's letter, and we're going to work ourselves backwards here from Hebrews to Paul to back to Acts. Back to the letter of Paul for a moment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, that the Corinthians were made sorrowful by Paul's previous letter. But Paul says... I wasn't feeling too bad about that because you needed to be corrected. My words, but that's what he's alluding to. And then he goes on to say, I'm actually more interested in the way my letter led you to a different kind of sorrow, to the godly kind. And Paul's admonishment, we know, made them feel badly. That's that worldly sorrow coming upon them. But then he says it also produced a sorrow that led to repentance, a godly sorrow. And then he adds in verse 10, this godly sorrow came as a result of the will of God. This confirms what we just read in the letter of Hebrews. Godly sorrow or repentance is a spiritual kind of regret as contrasted with that selfish kind that the world knows. And it can only come upon a person when God permits it. Another way to say it is he is the source of it. By his spirit, 
conviction to the point of godly sorrow or repentance can only come by God. So to sum up the principle, Paul sums it up for us in verse 11 of the passage I read in 2 Corinthians. He says, Worldly sorrow leads only to temporary regret and therefore it's powerless to affect any kind of spiritual change. And, and if you have unbelievers in your family as I do, you know exactly what we're talking about. They will make mistake after mistake after mistake. They will, in some cases, run their lives into the ground because of sin. And they will suffer loss after loss in the process and sorrow, sorrow after sorrow as a result. And you wonder, how many times are they going to go through this before perhaps their eyes will open? When you experience that kind of frustration and disappointment over the fact that their, their life is not answering those questions for them, is not pointing them in the right direction, that their mistakes are not helping them see the truth, you're experiencing the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You're watching what happens to someone who is self-centeredly sorrowful, but yet not spiritually convicted. That does not, by the way, suggest that we stand back and have nothing to do with it or play no part in it. We all expect and hope that we would be the instrument that God might use to bring that, sor that godly sorrow and repentance. So we continue, I would hope, to uh, minister to them any way we can, hoping that we can use anything in their life, good or bad, to point out the truth of the gospel and that God may use it to bring them to faith. But in the meantime, prior to God stepping into their life and changing their heart and bringing sorrowful, godly sorrow, they are just doomed to feel what we all would feel before we know the Lord, which is a selfish kind of regret. Godly sorrow produces repentance and is, as Paul says, a precursor to salvation. I talk about repentance with a capital R and repentance with a small r. Big R and little r. Big repentance, little repentance. What I mean by that is repentance with a little r is the feeling of sorrow or regret that we experience when we're convicted for our sins or over, over our mistakes. This is the kind of sorrow that's common to both Christian, non-Christian. Uh, it's the normal reaction when we bear the consequences of our sin. Little repentance. Repentance with a big R is the unique spiritual awakening that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the heart of a person in preparation for them to receive the truth of the gospel. That kind of godly sorrow is not the same feeling as worldly sorrow. There are many people who will tell you in their own experience coming to faith that when they went through the moment of a repentance prior to the accepting of the gospel, they weren't necessarily sad. Not in the same way that you would be if you wrecked your brand new car. You know, there's not a sorrow. It's more of a almost melancholy, reflective, profound feeling, profound sense of regret or shame or, or just amazement of what they didn't previously know but now believe. It's a, it's a sense of waking up. Now, the repentance, the reason we use the word repentance, biblically speaking, it's a turning it's not necessarily implying sadness, though we tend to use the word as such without thinking too much about it. But in reality, the word technically doesn't have anything to do with sadness. It has only to do with turning and walking in the opposite direction of where you previously were. And that's a perfect description of what faith does to a person's life. So repentance of the big R is that profound spiritual awakening. The prior type, the little r, short-lived, immediate, self-centered. This r, permanent, long-lasting, looking at issues spiritually, not looking at myself. It's an awakening to a life of sin, awakening to the reality that I was in a life of sin, lived apart from God, and then a turning from that permanently and a not looking back. This is not to speak about your behaviors. That's where we tend to get the, the, the words mixed up. We're not saying you won't sin again because you've had the big R repentance experience. We're talking about a way of thought, a spiritual 
approach to life that is totally new and, and sees the world the way it should be seen spiritually. When we tell someone repent and believe, that's when we can understand we're talking about the big R moment for them, which means I don't need them to list every sin they've ever committed and then, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I've seen that actually. I've seen people who think repent and believe means think of everything you've ever done, confess it, say you're sorry and you won't do it again, and then believe in the gospel. Folks, that's a work. You just encourage them to do a work in preparation to be saved by grace. It doesn't work that way. Repent simply means turn from a life lived apart from God and recognize the truth of who Christ is. If they receive that, you are seeing by their reception proof that God has granted them the gift of repentance, big R. If they reject it, you're simply seeing a potential convert for another day. Sorrow is always a good thing when it's, when it's a result of our sin because it has the potential to help us avoid it in the future. But, but when it comes to the issue of faith and belief and salvation, little r is not what brings you there. It can be a precursor if God chooses to use your, your difficult circumstances to tear down your pride and humble you. And that's all in preparation for him to bring true repentance. But you can also find someone who's had none of that and just happens to be in the church. And he hears somebody say, do you want prayer? So 19 now, Acts 11, 19, back to Acts. So then, now we're moving on from that moment with Peter. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So before moving forward with the story of Peter, remember we're in the two halves of Acts, Peter and Paul, we're still in the Peter part right now. Before moving forward with the story of Peter, though, Luke adds this other important detail concerning the outward movement of the church from Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the narrative, just as I've read it, some believe this, this narrative Luke gives you from 19 to 24 and onward runs parallel to the events of Acts chapters 8 through 10. So while 8 through 10 are going on, remember 8 through 10 are the period of time right after the persecution of Stephen. Simultaneously, what you hear, what you hear Luke describing here are sort of other things that were happening along those same lines at that same time. But I don't think that's true, and here's why. I think Luke here is describing events that occur both before and after as a result of what Peter has seen in chapter 10, or in chapter uh, 10, yes, as a result of the events with Cornelius. So Luke essentially is summing up what is the effect then of Cornelius and the Gentiles entering in. And to make that statement, he's, he takes us back in time and looks a little bit before the event, and he includes some references to what happens after the event. Let me show you why I think that's why he's saying it. The persecution, he says, scattered outwardly those who believed in the gospel so that it would be distributed. We've talked about this at an earlier point. But now Luke says it was not a uniform movement. Back to that time in chapter 8 when we saw Philip and others going out. He kind of adds a little detail here. Most of the disciples, we're told now, were only interested in preaching the gospel to the Jews in, diaspora, in the diaspora. Philip would have been the exception to that, obviously. 
Later, after Peter's experience with Cornelius, other disciples then went out specifically seeking Gentile converts. That seems to be what Luke is alluding to here. So that there were some who went out for the Jews only. Now you see some going out for Gentiles specifically. Later, uh, um, after the experience with Cornelius and these disciples go out to seek uh, Gentile converts, you see proof of their acceptance of Peter's testimony, their willingness to engage Gentiles. And keep in mind, their success in this endeavor was contingent on Peter opening the keys of the kingdom to the Gentiles. So if this had been going on before Cornelius, they would have had the chance to receive any Gentiles in this manner. This could only have been possible after the moment of chapter 10 and chapter 11. So that's why I say Luke is sandwiching these events by saying there were some in the early stages who went only to Jews. Now we have some able to and willing to go to Gentiles. Notice they're preaching what? They're preaching the Lord Jesus, we're told. If you go back, you'll notice in the book that they were preaching Christ to the Jews. But among Gentiles now, we're told they're preaching the Lord. The distinction reflects the cultural and religious differences between pagan Gentiles and God-fearing Jews. The Jews knew of a promised Messiah, which is Christ in Greek. So they received the message that their Christ had arrived in the person of Jesus because that made sense to them. They understood that they were looking for a Christ, and so here he is. But the Gentiles would have known nothing about a promised Christ, their promised Messiah. That was all Jew to them. They had no understanding of that. So if there had been people showing up into a, a pagan Gentile city preaching the Christ has arrived, it would have made no sense. But those same Gentiles certainly understood worshiping a Lord because they were required to do so when they worshiped the, their Lord Caesar. So now they're being taught of a greater Lord who required their worship and offered eternal life. So for them, it made perfect sense for someone to challenge what their concept of Lord was with a new concept of Lord, as opposed to the Jew who was waiting for the Messiah. So as a result of the movement, the church in Jerusalem uh, sees and hears of another group now in Antioch who receives this message. But like they were before, they're skeptical, just as they were with Philip's movement in Samaria. They're skeptical, so they send somebody to check on it. This time, they send Barnabas. Barnabas is a devout, learned Jew Remember, he's the friend of Saul who introduced Saul to the leadership in Jerusalem when Saul was converted. Since that encounter, Saul has returned to his home in Tarsus. So at this moment, Saul's back in Tarsus. Barnabas has remained in Jerusalem where his home was in the church. Now Barnabas is sent outward to investigate the reports at Antioch. Now Antioch is an important city. It was in that day. Third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself, of course, and Alexandria. It was located about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea in modern-day Syria. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, if you're looking on a map. It contained upward of 800,000 people. About 115,000 of them were Jews. And there were also a large number of, of uh, Gentile proselytes. So you have a fairly large contingent of Jewish believers in that city. Like many Roman cities, though, it was notorious as a pleasure-seeking city. Tremendous depravity in the city. In fact, ancient texts where you see Roman satirists of the day speaking about the times of Rome, there were, there were comments from Roman satirists claiming the city was so corrupt that the sewage that came out of the city contaminated Rome, which was 1,300 miles away. So it was a way of saying this is a bad place. It's interesting. This is the city that God selected for the Gentile church to gain its first foothold. Importantly, Antioch is also near Barnabas' home, his ancestral home on the island of Cyprus, 
which may explain why he was sent up there. Because after he's done traveling 300 miles, he'll have somewhere to stay. He'll be able to go to his own home. Secondly, and also interestingly, Antioch is only 90 miles from Tarsus, where Saul is living at this point. So Barnabas arrives. He finds a growing, vibrant, genuine Gentile church. And because he's under the influence of the Spirit, a godly man, he receives them as brothers and sisters, and he encourages them. But he also must have wondered, can you imagine what's going on in this guy's mind when he shows up in a city this large with a fast-growing Gentile church in a field of 800,000 potential converts? How far is this going to go, he might ask himself. And he must have wondered, who's going to begin to disciple these Gentile believers, this, this budding group of believers? They completely lack a knowledge of Scripture. They completely lack an understanding of godly living. They are heavily influenced by pagan practices. Where do you go to teach these people what they've entered into and prepare them for a life lived according to the Spirit? Who's going to care for this congregation that's so far away from what is, in that day, all the leadership of the church down in Israel and Judea and mostly in Jerusalem? How is this budding group of Gentiles going to be brought into the church? Barnabas knew the answer. Look at verses 25 and 26. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. As God would have it, the first Gentile church is founded in the backyard of the apostle who's appointed to the Gentiles, Saul. Coincidence? Hardly. And Barnabas must have recognized this, probably by the Spirit. And he knew Saul was the right guy for the job, so he goes and finds him. And I think maybe Saul mentioned this to Barnabas when he was in Jerusalem. It's not, un, it's not inconceivable that Saul might have known that this was his calling and mentioned something to Barnabas. But yet, until Peter turned the keys for that group of people to enter the kingdom, there was nothing for, in this case, Saul, before he became Paul, to go do. So it's been nine years at this point since Saul's conversion. Nine years sitting on the bench. With Saul, I doubt it was sitting on the bench, right? He was preaching to anyone who would listen. We've already heard him preaching in Jerusalem to the Jews. But if that's not your ministry, and what a great, great picture of how God works in in his specific ways. Here's a man as gifted as we know Paul is and as, as, as important as he was to be for the church. But until he found his ministry field, his ministry effectively went nowhere. He couldn't become what God, other than what God intended him to become. He couldn't succeed in terms other than the ones God set for him. So though he was capable of preaching to Jews with just as much authority as he eventually will do to Gentiles, they weren't his target audience. And so he had no great following among the Jews. And nor was he intended to. But when the moment arrived for his ministry to take hold, God had him in the perfect place and set him up for the right opportunity. That's the way God works with all of us. And in some sense, obviously, different contexts, but it's always the same pattern. So we know God has orchestrated these events so that when the keys of the kingdom were turned, there's Saul, there's the church, ministry begins. And in this place, we're told, the term Christian is established. Now, the name is significant in that it reflects the establishment of a new, distinct religious party or affiliation. It's not only significant for what it says, right? Little Christian or Christ-like. As I understand the way this word was used, it was used more like the party of the circumcision. Well, I'm of the party of the Christian. I'm the, I'm the party of Christ. It was a distinct party of religious thought that by its name was separated out from Gentile pagan views and from the traditional religious Jewish point of view. It set itself apart by its name. By adopting a new name, the church recognized the fact that 
the family of God had changed and had been separated spiritually from either of those two previous distinctions. Though there were Gentiles in the church and there were Jews in the church, the church was neither Gentile nor Jew in its origins, per se. It was not a Jewish movement with some Gentiles attached. It was not going to be a Gentile movement with some Jews attached, primarily. It was an entirely new concept, created by God, called into existence for a time and for a purpose. We are Christians by faith, regardless of our heritage beforehand. And Paul makes that same point in Galatians, you know, Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Finally, to finish, Luke relates an interesting encounter here at the end. He says, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Kind of an interesting footnote to the story, isn't it? Almost seems out of place just because it doesn't seem terribly significant in the light of what's going on in the rest of the chapter. But it is, as you might expect. Uh, Prophets are said here to come down, a prophet. Prophets are said to come down, actually. One of them being Agabus. From Jerusalem to Antioch. They come to deliver a message from God. Now, the the church has prophets in this time, obviously, because the canon of Scripture has not yet been completed. Until John's letter of Revelation, the Spirit was still at work revealing God's Word, and as a result, that work not being finished, you still have prophets who are able to bring God's Word in the meantime, the apostles being members of that group, obviously. The prophets... The, the prophetic word, the, the revealing of God's word, ceased with the closing of the canon. Now, pro- prophecy in the sense that God may reveal to an individual something about their future that they need to know in order to respond properly is different than what we're talking about here. We're talking about God adding to the knowledge of his word compared to someone simply knowing something about events in the future. There's a distinct difference between the two. The prophets of the Old Testament were doing both at the same time revealing something about the future, and producing a document, God's Word, which we have today. The apostles did the same, obviously, in some, in particularly in like the book of Revelation. Here you see prophets giving God's Word with respect to future events, and it became part of the canon. We just read it. So clearly there is still, in this day, canon being assigned, being created by God's power. But once the letter is finished at the end of Revelation and God says we will not add any more words to this book, the canon closed. And Hebrews now tells us that that was because God has accomplished all he needs to with respect to his word. Now he will simply fulfill it. With respect to revealing his word, now he will simply fulfill it. So they come, the prophets tell, of a coming famine in the world. The famine is going to bring destitution to the world. That's implied. And it's probably going to be worse among the brethren in Jerusalem and Judea. In a time of famine, and this is true in in any age, but particularly in this age, without welfare, as is what I'm referring to, people had to depend on families and tribes to get through tough times. They shared, they they, uh, combined whatever wealth they had, they looked out for one another. But the church in Jerusalem, which was largely Jewish, would have been disowned by their Jewish families. 
That's the experience of Jews in the church back in Jerusalem. They, once they joined the church, left aside, put aside all their other social connections and business connections. The church became what they were dependent on in more ways than one. God made that available to them, but nonetheless, it's a very severe kind of state of life. Imagine now a famine in which you cannot turn to your ancestral tribal families for support. They have all the land. And what little you had, you may have already given to the church anyway. And so the church as a whole becomes very destitute because it lacks its own resources and can go nowhere else for them. God anticipated this, and he brings this word to the people in, in Antioch, knowing that when the famine hits, they'll be in a better position financially to do something to help the other churches. Luke says the Spirit sent these prophets to the church and informed them, and then right after that, the need arose and the church responded. Because we know the, word, the, the, the Lord's at work in all this, from the very beginning of it all, he produced these events, he produced the famine, and so on. Then you have to ask the obvious question. Why does he do it all? What's his ultimate purpose in this? The answer is he's bringing about circumstances to teach the Gentiles and the Gentile church particularly of their responsibility to honor and support their Jewish brethren. And he's doing this, of course, in keeping with Israel's preeminent role in God's plan for salvation. This is the, the heart of what Paul talks about in Romans 11. Don't be arrogant against the root. They hold you up. You don't hold them up, spiritually speaking. Secondly, the act of goodwill helps cement the Jews' acceptance of the Gentile church and the family of God. They would see, as you said, others who had the means willing to forego it to support a group of people who in the past hated them and, and for the most part didn't want them in the church to begin with. So it became an opportunity to witness back. It's amazing what God will do when his interest is in cementing spiritual relationships. He'll take away all your food. It gives you a very clear uh, understanding of his priorities, doesn't it? The earthly, the physical, the material will always be useful to the degree they grow us in the spiritual. And if taking him away achieves that best, so be it. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the study and for the chance to understand how you work so, um, so supremely in orchestrating your plan. And for each of us, Father, I thank you that we are in your plan. Not by our own merits, not by our own actions, but by the mercy that you extended to us in grace. Thank you, Father, for that mercy and your continuing mercy to help us understand your word and to live according to it. Thank you for the gifts in the room and for the sacrifices and the support that comes in many ways and for the opportunity to meet. And we do pray, Father, earnestly to come back again, if it be your will, and continue in this study. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.